Hi guys, uh, Pastor Greg Corcoran here from Battlefield Baptist Church. Uh, pray that this sermon is a blessing, an encouragement, and a challenge to you in your walk with the Lord. Additionally, I just wanted to say that if we here at Battlefield can ever be a blessing to you, please don't hesitate to contact us. And the best way to do that is through our website at battlefieldbaptist.org. Again, I pray this sermon blesses you, encourages you, and uh, that you'll fall more in love with God, more in love with his word, and more in love with people. Well, thank you so much for being here this morning. If you have your Bible, I want to ask you to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 in the precious word of God, and we'll get there here directly. Uh, as the choir's making their way down, and the praise team, and just so good to be in God's house. Amen? Let's do this. We're going to do two things at once. While they're moving, would you join me in a word of prayer? Let's, let's just start with a word of prayer. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to gather today in this place to worship, to sing praises, and to recognize and to revere your glory that was revealed through your Son. God, I pray that today, that as we look at your word, that scales of unbelief will fall from our eyes. That we will see what you have done for us, and we will be grateful. Lord, I pray that if there's somebody in this place that doesn't know Christ, or somebody watching that has never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior of their life, that God, that you would do that today through the preaching of your word and the wooing of your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for all the many benefits that we have in Christ. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for caring for us. We thank you for protecting us and providing everything that we have. And so, Father, I pray that you will bless now as only you can, and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, because you're my strength and my redeemer. And I give you the praise in advance for all that you'll do. For it's in the precious and powerful name of your son, Jesus, that I pray. And for his sake, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, it's so good to have you here this morning. You know, it's been said, I want to start with this quote. It's been said that when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we are celebrating the greatest thing. Watch this. When we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we're celebrating the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. Well, some of you got it. Man, it's the greatest thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. And if we'll just think about it for a second, because here's the deal, I want you to think about it because if we're not careful, this month, and quite honestly, all of our Christmas, watch the air quotes, all of our Christmas celebrations will resemble something completely different than what Christmas is all about. Last week, I was grateful Krista and I were able to get away for a couple of days. And um, we, uh, as soon as we got in the car, it was pretty interesting to me. Uh, men, I don't know if, you know if you drive a vehicle and your wife drives a different vehicle, this doesn't happen. But when the wife gets into your vehicle, it becomes her vehicle. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We got on the road, and as soon as we got on the road, the left hand reached over. You know where the left hand was going? It was going for the radio dial. 
And it wasn't too long before she found a station that was playing non-stop, 24 hours a day, songs of the season, or what some would call Christmas music. In fact, I think one of the channels that she happened upon was called the Hallmark Channel. They even have Christmas music on the radio now. And it wasn't too long, was it? It wasn't too long. We were riding down the road. I, I think we got past Bealton. We might have gotten past through, headed to about Remington area. And it wasn't too long before the good old, the incomparable, the one and only, Bing Crosby came on the line. That old smooth voice. And he started singing his iconic rendition of It's beginning to look a lot like And I thought, Lord, help me. I mean, Gary Maines lives at 24-7, 365. There's nowhere he can go without people talking about Christmas or Santa. Here in the sanctuary, thanks to the incomparable skills and vision of Pastor Travis, we once again can look around and see that it is beginning to look a lot like Many of you in your homes, by the way, not at my home, no sir, no indeedy, but many of your homes have already been under the authority of Mama Bear, as it were, and maybe some of you have had to go into the recesses of the attic, the garage or the shed, and pull out the tree and the decorations, and so I would say it's fair to say that in some way things may be beginning to look a little bit like Christmas at your homes as well. But I digress and I ask a question this morning. Have you ever wondered, in the midst of the tinsel and the trappings of the season, have you ever wondered when Christmas actually began? Oh, this could be a long discussion. Have you ever be wondered, and I'm not talking about a date like December the 25th or some other date that snack shop theologians have come up with, talking about that it might be in April or June or whatever, because the reality is the Bible, which is our authority, right? We follow what the Bible has to say. The Bible doesn't give us a date, and the Bible doesn't really give us many clues about the beginning of Christmas. I mean, certainly we know that the prophet Isaiah, he prophesies about the beginning of Christmas. In Isaiah 7, 14, the Bible says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And she'll call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah continues. And he tells us in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 and following. He says, hey, guess what? His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. He's going to be called the Mighty God. He's the Everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. And he goes on and he says, and of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. I like that. Aren't you thankful there's no end to his government? Oh, I could say some things right now, but I won't. Our government seems to falter here and there and yonder. But I'm thankful for Jesus' government, that there's never going to be an end to his government. Look, in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1 and following reveals how the angel of the Lord visited Joseph in a dream. 
And he tells Joseph, he tells him not to fear taking Mary as his wife. And then the angel also reveals everything else that Joseph needs to know about the coming birth of Jesus Christ. And if you go to Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 1, in verse 26, you begin to see the angel Gabriel. He stops by and sees Mary as well. And he tells all these things to Mary. But when you get down to Luke 1 and verse number 38, we find Mary's response. And she says, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me, watch what she says, be it unto me according to thy word. So we start to see some clues about when Christmas began. In fact, as Pastor Travis has been trying to get me to change my message all week, he wanted to put a clock tower in here and he wanted me to preach on the fullness of time. You can see how far that got. There is no clock tower and that's not the message today. But even in Galatians chapter 4, the Bible talks more about Christmas's beginning saying, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we, that's good news, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Isn't that good? Oh, we see all kinds of things in scripture and truly all of these passages, they're amazing truths about that point us really to the Christ of Christmas. But what I want us to consider is the beginning of Christmas. I want us to consider the beginning of Christmas because it's very, very important for us. If we miss the beginning of Christmas, we miss it all. You say, what are you talking about? Oh, it's important because really what I'm trying to draw our attention to is when... When did the earthly life of Jesus Christ actually begin? When was the beginning of Christmas? Look with me in John chapter 1. And beginning in verse number 1, notice in verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse number 2 says, The same was in the beginning with God. Now look back at verse number 1 because the phrase, The Word, is a direct reference to the essential word of God. And when it says the word, it is speaking of Jesus Christ. So when we say the word today, we're talking about Jesus. Who was with God. It says the word, right? It says the word. And the word was with God. From the beginning. It's saying it's from the beginning. And the reason the word was with God from the beginning is because Jesus is, he was, and he has always been God. Hold on, we ought to get more excited about that. Jesus is, he was, and he's always been God. I got news for you. If he's not, we're all in trouble. Verse number two, look. It reiterates verse number one by pointing to the importance of Jesus' eternality, his personality, and his deity. Look, it says, and the same was in the beginning with God. Listen, without God, there is no beginning. So I want to talk to you about the beginning of Christmas this morning. But look down with me because really we're going to find the answer. I believe. I believe we're going to find the answer to the beginning of Christmas when we drop down and look at verse number 14. Look at verse number 14 because John writes, and the word, and who we say the word is? And who's the word? Okay, I want to get us all on the same page. And the Word, referring to Jesus, was made what? Flesh. 
flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Truly, this verse, verse number 14, actually takes you and I back to the beginning of Christmas, even before, even before we find Mary and Joseph in a stable down the road in Bethlehem. Takes us all the way back to the very beginning of Christmas. Takes us back to the actual conception, if you please, of Jesus in the womb of Mary. We're all adults here. Look, you see, Christmas didn't begin in Bethlehem. It began as Luke 1.35 shows us and indicates when the Holy Spirit came upon. When it came upon Mary and the power of the highest overshadowed her and conceived within her the very Son of God. That's when Christmas began. And the angel told Joseph, he said, Joseph, he said, you don't have to fear to take Mary as your wife. Because over in Matthew chapter 1, when he's telling him this, he says, that, that thing, that, that which is conceived in her, that child that is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now, I know I have some smart people in here. I have some pastors and teachers and theologians in here, and certainly we could argue and debate that Christmas actually began. Back in Genesis chapter 3, we'll say, Pastor, you know not your scripture? No, I know it full well. That was when Jesus said, hey, listen, old devil, old you serpent. Uh, there's coming a day when you're going to be snuffed out. He gives him the, the evidence there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. There may be some others who point out God's sovereignty and want to talk about the beginning of Christmas as we look back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 4 that says, Hey, brother, it was foreordained. God had foreknowledge. He knew Christmas was coming all the way back then. Yeah, we could talk about that. But for you and I, watch this, for you and I in a very real sense, the beginning of Christmas, it actually began when the Holy Spirit conceives in Mary's womb the Son of God. That's when Christmas began. Oh yes, as crazy as it may sound, our Lord spent his first nine months on earth as a preborn baby. But I got news for you. Whether the world wants to agree with it or not, he, he spent his first nine months on this earth as a preborn baby and he was fully alive, he was fully human, and he was fully God. That ought to get you excited. You say, how do you know he was fully alive? He was fully... Man, even, even the baby in Elizabeth's womb leapt. When she got in, when, when, when Mary got into her presence, the Bible says that, that, that John, right, that, that, that forerunner of Jesus Christ started jumping around. He even recognized the glory of Jesus. Two preborn babies. John was having a worship service in the womb of Elizabeth. I bet you never heard that before, did you? You see, Jesus didn't become the God-man in Bethlehem. He was God incarnate. He was already God incarnate from the moment of his conception. And this truth is the truth behind the beginning of Christmas. Uh, listen, we can talk about Mary and Joseph and we can talk about the angels, the shepherds and Simeon and Anna and Elizabeth and, and Zacharias and, and on and on. We can talk about Little Road down to Bethlehem. And we can even see what Micah has to say about that. But the beginning of Christmas 
is all about Jesus. In fact, look at John 1, 14 again. The Bible says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I would submit to you this morning that without this verse, without this one verse, this portion of this one verse, the rest of the Christmas story would not be much of a Christmas story because the Word had to become flesh to be a Christmas story. Oh, listen, in fact, the first phrase here points to the whole truth about the beginning of Christmas. Because here it is, if you're a note taker, verse number 14, it tells us the whole truth about the beginning of Christmas because it actually speaks of our Lord's incarnation. And notice the first phrase, the Word was made flesh. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful Jesus put on flesh. If He didn't put on flesh, again, we would be in trouble today. But I'm thankful that he put on flesh because in that moment, in that instant, the very word of God, the essential word of God puts on flesh and he reveals to you and to me, he reveals the love that God had for you and for me. God said, I love you so much, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. I love you so much that I'm going to send my son. What? Circuit breaker blown. This is how much God loves us. Oh, yes. Certainly the incarnation of Jesus Christ is a difficult thing to grasp and has been discussed and debated down through the years. Some people suggested that Jesus wasn't really a man, but he only looked like a man. Others concluded that he, he probably had a body, but he didn't have a human soul. Some others have thought and taught that maybe Jesus was two people in one body, kind of a hybrid, a half God and a half a human. And many claim that Jesus wasn't and he isn't God at all, but just an ordinary man, just an ordinary person with a sin nature, just like you and me. But I'm thankful that God's word emphatically debunks all of those theories by declaring that Jesus was conceived in Mary's womb, watch this, by God himself. Not some Roman soldier dressed up. Not some other kind of fanatical way that the world tries to get you to swallow. Remember last year I was teaching the very first Christmas message I taught last year was on the, the virgin birth. Oh, listen, the world will try and get you to swallow every, everything. But we got to be careful that we listen to God and not the world. If you look at verse number 14 again, what I see is that the infinite God, the infinite God, is literally, he's the creator God. In fact, if you look back, in fact, look in your text, if you look back at verse number three and number four, you find that the infinite God, this creator God, is also in verse number four, he's the self-existent God from whom all life flows. In fact, that's what it says in verse number four. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Listen, you don't have life without Jesus. You don't even breathe today without Jesus. You say, I'm struggling this season of life to be grateful for things. The fact that you woke up this morning ought to be enough to be grateful. It gives you the very breath of life. Oh, listen. The reality is the word incarnation or incarnate do not actually appear in Scripture, but the components of in and flesh actually do. They actually come from a Latin word, incarno. Now watch what this word means. It means to clothe with flesh, to embody in the flesh. And so spiritually speaking, when we look at this idea, this concept of incarnation, the reality is that the incarnation refers to the divine act 
in which the second person of the triune God was embodied, watch this, in human nature, in human flesh, and in human form. The eternal God of very God clothed himself in in humanity without diminishing his deity at all. Fully God, fully man. Why? Because he is the God-man, Jesus Christ the righteous. You say, Pastor, where do you get, could I get a little proof? Could I get a little evidence? Absolutely. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 3. The Bible says that God sent his own son, watch this, in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Now notice, God sent his only son, watch, there it is, he sent his own son in the likeness, not sinful, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. See, Jesus Christ didn't sin, never committed a sin, but he did die for you and for me and for the sin of the world. Look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7 tells us that Jesus made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Hebrews 2.17, the Bible says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him. Who did it behoove? It behooved Jesus to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Let me just stop here. I'm thankful for God's mercy. Man, if you haven't experienced, if you're not sure you experienced mercy, can I just tell you, you have? I like that post you posted the other day, man, about God's mercy. The reality is what you and I deserve is death. But God in his mercy withheld it and sent his son, Jesus Christ, because of his grace and his love. Oh, listen, I'm so thankful. Look at Hebrews 2 again. It says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Listen, we need reconciliation. And Jesus Christ came to bring it about. And the, and the funny thing is there are, there's no theologian that can say for certain how these things happened. But this is what God's word teaches. And as we learned in our last series, that's what faith is all about, right? Faith believes what God has revealed. And faith trusts what God has promised. By the way, God didn't, he he didn't schedule a press conference. He didn't schedule a press conference and let all the news media outlets know that his son would soon arrive on the scene. No, what he did in love, he sent his only begotten son as a tiny, as a tiny helpless baby. In fact, Matthew 1.23 says it this way, Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. It's so simple and yet it is so Profound. Earlier, I like the fact that we sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And you know what's crazy is we didn't even arrange that, but that was a song that we were singing. And in the phrase, in that song, notice we sang Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Well, the song goes on. Now, our song jumped into the chorus, but the song goes on and it says, Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Is he your king this morning? 
Oh, I pray he is. I pray he's, he's more than just some kind of a, a, a fail-safe punch-out. I pray that he's your king, that he's your Lord and Savior. But look back at verse number 14 because we not only see our Lord's incarnation, uh, John also speaks here of our Lord's habitation. Look, it says here, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It was the late Presbyterian uh, minister and theologian, Eugene Peterson, when looking at this verse, here's how he described it. He said, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> now, you may not like his vernacular, but he was right. You may not like that vernacular. There was another theologian who just simply said Jesus moved into the hood. You might not like that vernacular either, but they're both right. Whether or not you prefer it, Jesus Christ the righteous clothed himself in flesh for 33 plus years and the Bible says he dwelt among us. Do you know that that word dwelt in verse number 14 literally comes from the Greek word skenoo and it actually means to tent. Watch this. It's going to get good real quick. To tent or encamp, to occupy or reside as God did in the tabernacle of old. In other words, this verse, verse number 14, when it says that he was uh, uh, made flesh and dwelt among us, this verse is telling us that Jesus made his dwelling place, or in other words, Jesus, watch this, he pitched his tent among us. You say, why is that good? Well, the reality is in the Old Testament, the tabernacle which was housed in a tent, you ready? That tabernacle which was housed in the tent is where the glory of God dwelt before the days of the temple was built. In fact, last Sunday I had an opportunity to be in Exodus chapter 33. Krista and I were visiting another church. By the way, when I'm away, we, we visit other churches. And uh, so we were in this church and we were visiting and uh, the, the gentleman that was preaching was preaching in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. And uh, uh, good message, but in, in that passage, the Bible reminds us that the tabernacle was also known as the tent of meeting. It was literally the divinely appointed meeting place between God and man. Now go back to our verse. And Jesus was made flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, he pitched his tent for 33 plus years. Watch this. He pitched his tent among us. Listen, in a much deeper sense, Jesus is the place. You ready for it? He's the place where you and I, if you please, where we meet, where we meet God today. He pitched his tent. And if you want to have a relationship with God, you got to go through Jesus. Isn't that what he said? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man come uh, unto the Father but by me. That's what he said. you got to come through me. I'm the tent. I'm the place of getting in, in other words. In Hebrews chapter 8, the Bible refers to the Lord who is our high priest. In Hebrews 8 and verse number 2, it says that he is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. It isn't something that was conceived of or brought about by you or me. It was something that was done by God of very God. And interestingly enough, throughout Scripture, you know there's a group of people that use tents. We have shepherds that sleep in tents. We have sojourners or travelers that sleep in tents. And we also have soldiers for you of the military ilk who sleep in tents. Hmm. 
Why did they sleep in tents? Because if you're a shepherd, if you're a sojourner, or if you're a soldier, you're never in one place for a very long time. Am I right? Our Lord, watch this, he was made flesh and dwelt or tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us for a very short time because he was a shepherd. He was a sojourner. And he was a soldier. Oh yes, as the good, great, and the chief shepherd of our soul, he came as a visitor from heaven. He came as the captain of our salvation in order to conquer sin and death, in order to defeat the devil. The beginning of Christmas recognizes right from the get-go that Jesus was God's rescue mission to the human race. Amen? Oh yes, he was sent from God. He came forth of a virgin. He pitched his tent. Covered himself in flesh. He pitched his tent among us. He died for our sins. And he returned to his heavenly abode. And those who know him shall see him as he is soon and very soon. Notice again in verse number 14, John also speaks not only of our Lord's incarnation and his habitation, but he speaks of our Lord's glorious manifestation. He says here, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Look at this. John says, we saw him as he was. We beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. John is testifying to the fact that he and others were privy to behold with their own eyes the glory of Jesus' divine nature and perfections. And what is he talking about? They were privy to see his omniscience, the fact that he knew everything. They were privy to see his omnipotence, that he had power to raise even people from the dead, to restore sight to the blind, and on and on the list goes. And so they saw all of these things while Jesus was in his incarnate state. And if we go back to Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 6, the Bible tells us this. Who, speaking of Jesus being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, like father, like son. Hey, there's a warning right there, men. You better be careful. Like father, like son. There's a lesson there for us to understand. Like father, like daughter, like father, like son. But with Jesus, the concept is taking even further to complete perfection because he was and he is, watch this, the exact image of his father. He is God incarnate. Listen to how he put it in John 14, and you don't have to turn, but you can if you'd like to. How he put it when he had a little bit of an exchange with his disciples and I already referenced the first verse in, in, um, in verse number 6. Remember, Jesus, it says, Jesus saith unto him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Remember, he's answering Thomas at this point in verse number 6. Thomas says, hey, he says, how can we know where you're going? How can we know the way? And, and on and on. And Jesus says here, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Notice he continues in verse number 7. He says, if you had known me, you should have known my Father. If you know Jesus, you're going to know the Father is what he's saying. He says here, he said, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. Well, then notice Philip gets into the fray, and Philip says unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will suffice us. It'll suffice us. And Jesus says unto him in verse number 9, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? Notice what he says. He that has seen me has seen the Father. They beheld his glory. 
the glory of the only begotten of the Father. If you look back at verse number 14, we find this word beheld as well. The word beheld comes from the Greek word theomai, right? And it means to look closely, to study, or to gaze intently upon. That is to perceive. In other words, John says, we studied him. We, 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 we understood him. We looked at him. We gazed upon him. We perceived who he was throughout his earthly ministry. Ironically enough, this word beheld is the same Greek word from where we get down the road, the word theater. And so if you please, ironically enough, Jesus, as he walked throughout the theater of this earth, his glory was manifested through him in every place he went and in everything that he did. The angels declared his glory. The shepherds experienced his glory. And the people saw his glory. In fact, you remember when Jesus is a little boy and, and everybody makes their way to Jerusalem and then they start tra traversing back home and, and mom and dad finally figure out a day and a half late. Listen, mom and dad better wake up. Like, they figure out a day and a half later that Jesus isn't hanging with the, with the group that's traveling. They're like, where is that boy now? Right? And so they make their way back to Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that his glory was actually being revealed in the temple as he sat with doctors of the law. In fact, in Luke chapter 2 and verse number 47, the Bible says that they were astonished at his understanding and actions. So from a very young age, you start to see the glory of Jesus revealed. You remember in Matthew chapter 17, Peter, James, and John, they go up to the mount of what? Transfiguration. And they see the glory of Jesus there. In John chapter 2, Scripture reveals that when Jesus, he places his approval on the marriage of Cana, and he turns the water into wine. Everybody's focusing on the water and the wine instead of him placing his approval on marriage. But the Bible says here that in Luke chapter 2 and verse number 10, or John 2 verse number 11, the Bible says that he manifested forth his glory. And when he did it, watch what it says. It says, and his disciples, what did they do? They believed on him. By the way, that was his first miracle. Very first miracle. The word begotten here in our verse, look at it. Back in verse number 14, the word begotten actually comes from the Greek word uh, monogenes. And it actually means only born, unique son, that is the only one of his kind. If you, listen, I don't know, if you're here today or you're watching online and you've yet to believe in the Christ of Christmas. The very beginning of Christmas, if you please. I don't know what else you need. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, listen, don't miss, don't miss the Christ of Christmas because we're talking about the very beginning of Christmas, beyond the trees, beyond the presents, beyond all the, all the pumpkin pies, the apple pie. I don't know what kind of pie you eat at Christmas, but I know I eat some. Beyond all of that stuff, can I tell you, don't miss the beginning of Christmas because it all began with Jesus Christ. Lastly, look at verse number 14. John concludes by pointing to our Lord's invitation. You say, man, all of this in one verse. Yes, all of this in one verse. Because notice it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Watch it. Here comes the invitation. Full of grace 
and truth. Folks, the fact that Jesus is full of grace and truth is not only a beautiful thing, it leads us to the very invitation of Christmas. Because here's the reality and the thing I know about us, because we're covered with flesh, we all tend to side on one way or the other. Sometimes, now listen, there comes a time when you got to bring the hammer down. But I know that even in my life, sometimes as a parent, we like to side on, we like to err on the side of truth, don't we? I told you not to do that. And we, we like to bark out orders as if we were perfect. Got real quiet in here. No parents saying amen. Because you all know it's the truth. But my Bible says that when they beheld Jesus, he was full of grace and truth. So I've said this before, and there's a lot of people who don't like it, but here's the reality. If you want to be like Jesus, you need to be balanced. You need to have some grace, and you need to have some truth. All truth and no love's a bully. I've run through some bullies before. By the way, they're still around. You can find them on every street corner, even at Christmas time. All truth and no love's a bully, but all love and no truth's a hypocrite. There must be some balance. And John says when they beheld him, he was full of grace and truth. We must be balanced. Listen, John speaks of seeing Jesus as full of grace and truth, with it, which, which explains exactly why he came to earth. Because he was full of grace. He laid down his life for you and me while we were yet sinners. Isn't that good? He, he laid down his life and I was still a sinner. Before I was a sinner, he laid down his life. Before I was even a twinkle. Right? He knew I was coming, but mom and dad sure didn't know. But he laid down his life for me. Because he was full of truth and not sin, he was able to pay the price for sin. He was able to pay the debt that you and I could never afford to pay. Because he's full of grace, you and I can come just as we are. No matter, no matter how checkered our past is. I put this in my notes. I thought it was good. Maybe you think it's corny. All pre-existing conditions are covered in Christ. Everybody today seems to be looking for an insurance plan. This plan or that plan. What job will cover me here? What this will do me here? But with Jesus, all pre-existing conditions are covered. All that's needed is a belief in who Jesus is and a sincere desire to be forgiven by him. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I'm so thankful that my God loves me enough to be willing to abundantly pardon. That's what the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved, watch this, through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because he is full of truth, you and I can be complete, we can be in complete confidence that what Jesus says, what God's word says, he will do. Isn't that good? When he says something, he means it. In fact, Numbers 23 and verse number 19, it tells us that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? Oh, yes, he will, because he's not a liar. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall 
be saved. Faith believes what God has revealed. And faith trusts what God has promised. I close with this story. It's the story of the late pastor and theologian Harry Ironside. He used to tell the story of a young Russian soldier who served during the reign of the Russian emperor, Tsar Nicholas I. I did a little research on old Nicholas I this week. It seems that uh, this young soldier's dad was a friend with the Tsar, and he had asked him on his behalf to provide his son with a job in the military. And so Nicholas I, it was said that he gave him a job as a paymaster for one of the barracks in the military. As it turned out, this man's son was morally weak. And he gambled away nearly all the money that had been entrusted to him as the paymaster. Word came to the young man that the auditors were going to come. That the czar had made a decree and they were going to send the auditors out and to check the records. He was so disturbed by this news and despairing what would take place and knew that his misappropriation, if you please, of the funds would be found out. That he'd be disgraced. That he made a determination in his heart that the only thing he could do was to take his own life. So the young soldier began writing down all his misdeeds and writing them out. And he was planning to take his own life. And after it was said, after writing a full confession of his deeds and totaling all the money that he had stolen, the young man simply wrote at the bottom of the ledger this question, this statement and this question. And it was, a great debt, who can pay? A great debt, who can pay? Weary from all the stress and the strain, the story goes on and says the young soldier fell asleep at his desk. Late that night, as was off the case, the czar himself was making the rounds throughout the encampment. Seeing the light on, he made his way to the young soldier's office and he found the young soldier asleep at the table with the confession laid out before him. Weapon over here to the left. And as he sat there and he looked at the young soldier and he started contemplating what the punishment would be for this young soldier, he noticed at the bottom of the young man's ledger that it said, a great debt, who can pay? Harry Ironside shared, he said that Nicholas leaned over the soldier and simply took the pen and wrote something on the piece of paper and he departed. When the young soldier awoke, he glanced at the clock. He realized that it's now the middle of the night. It's far past midnight when he had de de determined to take his own life. And as he prepared to follow through with what he thought was the best course of action in that moment, he looked down and he noticed at the bottom of that ledger, after his confession and the total of all the money that he had sold, he noticed down under the question, a great debt, who could pay? He noticed that in the hand of the only one that he had ever seen sign this name was simply the signature, Nicholas. The thought finally came upon this young soldier that the czar had known about his debt and not only knew about it, 
but he was willing to pay the debt himself. Resting on the signature and the word of his commander-in-chief, the soldier fell back asleep. In the morning, a messenger came to the palace, to the palace with the exact amount that the young man owed. Only the czar, it says, only the czar could pay and only the czar did pay. Likewise, when we talk about the beginning of Christmas, we have to know, we have to understand all of our misdeeds, all of our misappropriation, if you please, of this life that we've been given. And we have to understand, we have to come to grips with the reality, a great debt, who could pay? And the reality is someone has already paid the debt. And he stamped his name at the bottom of the ledger. And it's the name of Jesus. That's, folks, that's the beginning of Christmas. The Lord's incarnation, his habitation, his glorious manifestation, and his invitation. That's the beginning of Christmas. In a few weeks, we'll celebrate Christmas once again. And many will exchange gifts. But I pray that this Christmas, that we will do so with a greater awareness of the ultimate price that was paid. And it was already foreordained all the way back. Yes, it was. But it began in a very real sense when God himself came upon Mary and conceived Oh, his only begotten son. Do you know him? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior today? Well, I pray he is. If he's not, can I encourage you? Listen, the word of God has been preached. And I feel certain that the Holy Spirit of God is moving in this place. If you've never trusted Christ, can I tell you? It is simple as the verse that I shared a few moments ago. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're watching online, you've never trusted Christ. Could I encourage you to do that? Simply pray quietly unto yourself. In recognition of your need, in recognition of your own sinfulness, just call out upon the name of the Lord and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to forgive me. I need you to come into my life. I need you to change me from the inside out. And can I tell you, based on the authority of God's word, that's exactly what he'll do. Why? because he loves you. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the message, the, the beginning of Christmas, the reminder of what it's all about. Hmm. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Hmm. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what your word tells us. So God, I pray that if there's somebody that doesn't know Christ, that they will call upon the name of the Lord right now. I pray that if there's somebody who is strayed, somebody who is wandering, not following the shepherd, not walking with the flock, that they will, they will come back to the foot of the cross, that they will turn from themselves and turn back to the good, the chief, and the great shepherd of our souls. God, we love you. We thank you and praise you for this. In the powerful name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.